It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back for my week off. Thank you to Luke Jones for keeping the seat warm last week. Uh, today, the podcast comes from Bristol. We're marking a year since the statue of the slave trader, Edward Colston, was toppled in the city and tumbled into the harbour. Uh, coming up, we speak to Marvin Weeks, the mayor of Bristol, about his reflections on the past 12 months. And I've also been on a sort of history tour of the city to find out why it always seems to be Bristol that protests erupt. That's coming up, but first, it's time for the columnist panel. It's Monday, so it must be Libby Rachie, it's Libby Poets, and Rachel Sylvester. I'll ask you uh, in a moment who you'd like to see a statue put up to. But uh, a little bit of breaking news. Literally in the last few minutes, it seems as if uh, the um, the rebellion might be off, or at least Boris Johnson might have got lucky. Lucy Fisher at the Daily Telegraph reported that the, the planned Tory rebellion in the Commons today aimed at reversing the cuts to foreign aid has been thwarted, not because there aren't the numbers to vote it down, but because the clerks have decided the rebel amendment is completely out of scope. Basically, they were trying to amend a slightly different piece of legislation by writing in uh, to the bill that the government would put the... Uh, foreign aid uh, back up to 0.7% of uh, GDP. Um, but it just goes to show, Libby, that that big 80-seat majority that Boris Johnson won in 2019, it's not as rock-solid as we thought, is it? Oh, uh, yes. I, I Basically, I very much approve of rebellions, um, <laughs> never mind what the issue is about, because I think when you've got one party riding high and the other a bit feeble, it, it's important that the voices of backbenchers do get heard and heeded. We've had a bit of a shortage of parliamentary debate over the COVID year. Um, I, I mean, on this particular issue, uh, I always have a certain sympathy with chancellors because uh, alone in government, th- what they do has an immediate effect. You know, they, they are dealing with something very solid, which is money and budgets. And, uh, you know, the, 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 it, everything can be traced back to what they do. So I feel sorry for him. But on the other hand, I'm glad at least that there has been debate about this. And uh, I, I don't know about the technicality of the amendment. Rachel probably does. <laughs> but uh, uh, on the whole, a bit of parliamentary, uh, parliamentary infighting is not a bad thing when you have a ruling party so overwhelming, overwhelmingly. Yeah, Rachel, if this is the case that the, uh, the amendment has been brought out of order, that's, that's potentially only rebellion uh, delayed or postponed rather than avoided altogether. 
Yes, definitely. And I know the government's been putting huge pressure on the clerks and the speaker to try and make sure this issue isn't voted on. You know, they're not so keen on parliamentary sovereignty when it doesn't go their way, basically. And I think you're absolutely right. It shows how fragile, in fact, that what appeared to be a huge majority was when uh, Boris Johnson loses touch with his MPs and voters. It's really interesting because the polls seem to show huge public support for this cut in age. But I sat in some focus groups recently in two uh, cabinet ministers' seats, Alec Sharma's seats and Predominant Raab's seats, which are sort of Reading and Eastram Walton. Uh, and they were conservative voters there. And they started off pretty mixed on the aid cuts. You know, some were saying, you know, charity begins at home. Others were saying, no, we need to do our bit by the rest of the world. But by the end of the group, when they discussed it and they'd been shown interviews with the aid workers, interviews with the people who are going to lose out. There was almost universal um, outrage about the cuts, in fact. And so I think Boris Johnson thinks this is sort of politically um, easy, but actually I think it may be more controversial and dangerous for him. And, and then, of course, morally and diplomatically, it's a disaster, particularly ahead of the G7. Well, I was going to ask about that. Libby, we've got the G7 happening in Cornwall uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday this week. Boris Johnson uh, pleading with other world leaders, not just the seven, you know, it's just not just seven countries. He's invited lots of other countries as well. And he's going to be making the case that everyone should step up and they should do the right thing, whether it's about tackling climate change or sharing vaccines or whatever it might be. It's quite difficult to do that if you've spent the week in a very public spat with your own MPs about trying to cut the amount of money that Britain's spending on uh, foreign aid. Yes, I, he'll bluster through it some, somehow, I suppose. <laughs> but I think what Rachel was saying about the, the about the, the the MPs, the Tory MPs, is is very interesting because you know it is just too easy for idiots like this, you know, this mad bigoted bishop um, in Wales, uh, Bishop Penbethy, you know, who tweets never, never, never trust a Tory, you know, and all all Tories evil and so on. That actually all parties have within them uh, a range of of views and a range of degrees of charity and of public public spiritedness and of international spiritedness and i think it's it's uh, i was very interested in what what uh, what rachel said just now because you you know you you have to accept the actual humanity and diversity within any party it's interesting. I spoke to Andrew Mitchell, who's organising the rebellion um, over the weekend, and he was a chief whip, so he absolutely knows. He knows how to, how to organise the government. <laughs> exactly, and he's utterly ruthless about it, and he's very, you know, clever and organised. But he said, you know, the reason David Cameron won a majority uh, in 2015, after all those years where Tories hadn't won majority, was by widening the party's DNA, is how he put it. So they managed to appeal to sort of liberal. Um, decent voters as well as the kind of more old-fashioned traditional right-wing conservatives uh, and Boris Johnson he, he thinks if Boris Johnson sort of loses half a part of that coalition to you know appeal to a mm. sort of more nationalistic side that's electorally very risky for him actually so it's not just about, you know, being it's difficult diplomatically on the eve of the G7. It may actually be an electoral disaster for him in the longer run. It's interesting that how it all plays, just because individually things might poll well. Yes, we should cut foreign aid right now. Over It's the overall impression it gives. and the, the Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. The, 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 the mood music, if you like. Uh, Libby, let's talk about your column today. Um, latest Times columnist to take aim at Stonewall. Explain to people who haven't necessarily been following this, this uh, saga. What's going on with Stonewall? 
well, Stonewall, which did such sort of terrific work fighting against Section 28, you know, the, the dehumanising, the pretended family values line under the Thatcher government, um, they they have now tangled themselves up, as Matthew Paris, who one of the founders put it, tangled themselves up in the trans issue and the sort of extreme trans language. And because they get these contracts, they're extraordinary, their diversity champion thing gets, you know, it gets a lot of, con you know, government departments, uh, all sorts of people sign up to this, though some have now dropped out, Channel 4 has dropped out, several others have dropped out, um, and they get points on their diversity championship for using language in a very special way, like referring to a mother as a parent who has given birth. Um, and all these other ridiculous euphemisms which people go in for now, uh, which are designed not to upset the very, very tiny trans community. I mean, even the BMA, you know, has got certain sort of absurdities of this kind in its advice. And it seems to be absolutely crazy because what you should do is you should say to every medical professional, everyone who deals with everyone, every service, say, look, actually, when you are dealing with somebody who is trans, you know, think about it, be tactful, use whatever pronouns they are happy with, you know, be nice, be good, be tolerant, you know, accept that they have as much right to live their lives their way as you do. But don't then sort of say that, you know, the word mother is bad or that you must refer to breastfeeding as chest feeding, you know, just in case, you know, somebody is upset because uh, they, they no longer identify as a woman or they no longer identify their breasts as breasts. Uh, it, it's, it's an absurdity. And what struck me was that it's a it's like the pigs at Animal Farm, you know, who turn right around and become as bad as the originals. What Section 28 did was absolutely wicked, you know, this, oh, pretended family relationship, you know, it's not a real family if there's same-sex parents. You know, what they're sort of saying now is, well, you know, women, you know, mothers, all the, all this language, you know, let's, it's just pretended, basically all parents are absolutely equal and uh, you must never say what gender they are. So I just wanted to sort of point out that there's an irony there in what Stonewall's doing now. And I wish they'd stop, because basically I was a supporter of Stonewall. Well, yeah, in fact, our, like you said, our colleague Matthew Paris was one of the co-founders of Stonewall, and, is he, you know, and he's, uh, he's written very strongly about it. What, what do you make of this, Rachel? Because it, it is one of those debates which is so absolutist at times that I think lots of people don't dare even go near it for fear of saying the wrong thing and having a massive pile on but as a result the whole thing actually becomes even more absolutist amongst you know it's just a conversation amongst the absolutists yeah exactly and i hate that we're talking about it at one level actually because i think you know this culture wars the whole thing on both sides is a massive distraction from what really matters in the world which is you know children haven't been to school for half a year people are dying of covid you know this is just a massive distraction to be honest and i i hate that by talking about it we're sort of at one level fueling the division but on the other hand i think libby's column really made such a good point about this you know tolerance cuts both ways and there is a danger with the sort of intolerance now going in the other direction um and I, I don't think by describing myself as a mother i don't feel that i'm doing anybody down i certainly don't want to do anybody down i think that that's absolutely everybody is equal what you know whatever their gender but i don't think that using the word mother or talking about breastfeeding i've got my niece here at the moment with a teeny weeny little baby um you know she's proud to be a mother it's a lovely thing motherhood but it doesn't it's not a negative thing about anybody else uh, yeah. to talk but about the reason, being a reason we have to talk about it reason we have to talk about it sometimes is it's public money is that a lot of government departments and big public bodies have actually signed up 
in a craven manner to all this nonsense. We really need to sort of stiffen up and say, actually, it's rubbish, go away. Uh, and we don't. I mean, the big, big institutions really fall for this and public money is spent on it. And I suppose that, that's that's the thing. And actually, the, the number of organisations that have, have stepped away from Stonewall is is, uh, is striking. Um, but you can read uh, Libby's column online today. The other thing I just wanted to touch on is is how long... How old do your tweets need to be for it oh. not to unseat your, you know, to end your career? It's because the uh, England bowler, uh, Ollie Robinson, has been suspended from international cricket pending an investigation into historical racist and, se- and sexist tweets. The posts are from 2012 and 2013. Uh, Oliver Dowden, the culture secretary this morning, uh, saying that the uh, England Wales Cricket Board has gone over the top by suspending you. How, I mean, the, this is, I suppose, the trouble with the whole generation who've grown up posting stupid things <clears> online. When they're 17, 18, 19, and then later in life it all all comes back. He's apologised, mm-hmm. it has to be said, uh, and says he's embarrassed and ashamed by it. But is there should there be a sort of statute of limitations? Uh, do you think, Rachel, on on old tweets? Well, I feel really. I I don't have a very strong opinion about this. To be totally what? honest, but uh, <laughs> that's no help at all. I, I had to Google what he'd said in his tweets because I think the Times didn't report it because they were incredibly offensive, and yeah. I'm not sure. You know what? I I mean. I do feel sorry for him at one level, but also it doesn't make it any better because it was quite a long time ago. He said really bad things, um, and that I, it does have to—you do have to take some responsibility for that. So, although I do feel sorry for him, I think probably on balance there has to be some punishment. And also, you just the lesson is: be careful what you tweet and be careful what you say on social media. But also. He shouldn't have said it. So he shouldn't have said it in 2012. He shouldn't say it now. But just because it was then, it doesn't mean it's okay sort of thing. But yeah. but I don't know. What do you think, Libby? Well, are we not blessed to have been idiots before the internet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I not that I held any of the views, but I think it is. I don't think you would have said any of those things, and I definitely wouldn't. So that's the thing. Well, the point is, is, but you say said. Of course, I wouldn't have posted them. I wouldn't have typed them out. In fact, uh, those particular things I wouldn't have said at all because no. they, they were just nonsense. But uh, people, people do not understand. I think I'm a bit. It's unfortunate, you know. That sort of eight years later, this chap who's apologised, you know, is still suspended. But you know it. It's. Um, I think. I think the only good thing about him being suspended is pour encourager les autres. You know, it just reminds everybody else that basically it is a public notice board on which you are putting this stuff. You know, mm. and if you put anything up on a public notice board, then it will last. It's a permanent public notice board. It's the only, it's the first public notice board there's ever been since stuff has been chipped out in stone, which really <laughs> is permanent, and you can't get rid of it. So if kids now are thinking, oh, here, I better not put that rather good joke down because it could come back to bite me, because sometimes they're more far more harmless things have damaged people's future careers you know more harmless things than ollie robinson's which like you i had to google for some time to find <laughs> yeah just if it encourages everyone to think twice before tweeting there's probably no bad thing right before i let you go because i'm in bristol we're talking about the statue coming down in bristol a year ago today um but also about putting up statue who would you like to see a statue to uh libby kate bingham very good very good uh what about you rachel um, that's a great one. But actually, can we just have an empty plinth? I'm a bit fed up with this whole statues thing. I just They just seem to be causing controversy. And I don't see why we have to have, you know, I think statues are very old fashioned. So let's just have an empty plinth as a reminder of, you know, our history. 
Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester, of course you can read them in the Times every week, just get yourself in Times digital subscription, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, why Bristol? One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Red Box podcast and you may remember that a year ago only a day or two after the Coulson statue came down I interviewed Marvin Rees the mayor of Bristol here on the Redbox podcast so as I was back in the city I thought I'd catch up with him and see what he makes of the events of the past 12 months. Well that was a statement about that kind of almost history folding back on itself the the statue of someone who made their wealth um, in large part from the kidnapping enslavement that would involve it would have involved the torture of enslaved Africans or that twenty yeah. percent of the people um that um came under his charge that apparently died en route would have been thrown overboard to have that statue roll through the streets and thrown into the harbor the very harbor that his ships would have docked just outside this yeah. building um is history leaning back on itself and that that's what I meant uh, by that and that that was something I couldn't you know avoid seeing but as I say also said as a mayor you know, I cannot condone criminal damage, and it was criminal ga- damage by de- uh, by definitions. Um, so, you know, I hold those things together. And that's the thing, isn't it? And lot, some people have very strong views on it, but it is possible to both not like the statue, not be heartbroken that it was taken down, but also not condone criminal damage at the same time. Well, I, I think, yeah, and that, that, one of my challenges as a, as a mayor of the city is to make sure that this is a city in which um, if you get what you want, if you if you actively get what you didn't want, this is still your city. Now we've got people who looked on that statue, um, the hauling down, the way it happened, and take joy in every aspect of that. Right? It's it's it, you know it's a it's a message to the establishment. It's a turning over of the order. There were some people who were sympathetic to the statue coming down, but are dismayed at the way it happened because yeah. they feel like they're losing control of their city. There are some people who feel Colston was an integral part of Bristol's identity or is, and they feel they've lost a piece of themselves and they've lost a piece of the city's identity. Um, and this still is their their city. And our challenge in the coming uh, you know months is to you know look at Colston but to look at the broader history so Colston in many ways is a departure point but it's not the destination yeah. look at the broader story of Bristol so we have a fuller understanding of who we are um, and this is a city that wherever you are on your interaction with with, with the events that happen you know this is your city and it's a city that is, it respects you obviously the statue was it was soon fished out of the harbour it's been in storage and is now gone on display at the M shed just across 
uh, the water. Have you been down and seen it in the exhibition? Yeah, well, I went before the exhibition opened up, and, and obviously I've seen drawings yeah. as the uh, display, the exhibition's being planned. It's really the thing that really struck me is partly obviously there's some stuff about the history of uh, you know Colston's own history, but the timeline of basically unhappiness about the statue dated almost back right to the point that it was put up you know uh, notably 170 odd years after Colston died so it wasn't a thing of its time but this wasn't a new thing although for lots of people who don't know Bristol this may have seemed like something that, that, that blew up last year but actually this wasn't a new controversy was it? No, um, and many controversies are like that, aren't they? Yeah. You know, as soon as certain groups get involved with the power of social media or, the, you know, they have a voice and suddenly people say there's a new debate in town. People say, hold on, we've been having this debate for a long time. It's just you didn't, you didn't know about it. Um, so, yeah, it's always been uh, controversial. It's controversial at the beginning. There was a bit of political competition, wasn't there, between Burke and, you know, the, the, the people that, you know, held up Burke and Colston. Um, also thinking about what the statue meant at the time, I, mean, I, I think in many ways the statue's meaning has changed. I mean, originally some historians say that the Colston statue was put up in an effort to build civic pride because the working class, the white working class, were not happy at their, their conditions, their work conditions, their living conditions. And by creating this kind of founding father mythology, uh, you, you you built that loyalty in, so you know there's a so in many ways a tool of manipulation <laughs> and oppression Even that though. wasn't about justifying uh, slavery because it it wasn't a debate yeah. right, when it was put up, uh, but yeah. it's it's become today synonymous with Bristol's relationship with slavery. So the statue's meaning has changed over time, and it's just changed again because it's been pulled down. So this is part, in many ways, part of the ongoing, uh, you know, developing story of that that statue in the city. And has the has Bristol had the debate and the conversation that when we spoke a year ago, you hoped that it would come out of this? That actually people have been learning maybe a bit more about Bristol's relation with slavery. Is, is that is that debate been happening in the way that you hoped? No, I mean you know I, I was reticent to uh, jump all over it at the time. Yeah. You know the statue is massively significant, and I've been talking to African Americans as well and. You know, uh, you know about this in New York, in New Orleans, and and statues have huge significance because they convey meaning. But statues in and of themselves, and the change in the statues, do not bring about s systemic change. Yeah. Um, so as I said, I didn't get a memo on my desk the next day saying the school exclusions of black boys is now the same level as you know that for white boys, or mental health inequalities have changed, or we've solved our housing crisis. None of that. That stuff matters. I mean, I will share though. I I, I think that um, there's also a danger that people get caught up in the symbolism and don't deal with structural realities. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is that, you know, people can say, "Oh, great, the statue's down. All yeah. of Bristol's racial problems have now been solved." Yeah. Well, someone tweeted me the other day and said, "Marvin, I think they were the anti-establishment activists. They wanted to have a crack at me for being mayor." So they said, "Marvin, um, kind of like you know, we pulled the statue down because you didn't take action, and the debate ended last year." I said, I assure you it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Racism wasn't solved. And, I, and I'll just share one other thing, which is a very personal reflection from me. Now, for all that kind of so say heightened awareness about issues of race and class um, that that hauling down of the statue was supposed to have brought about, I just ran for mayor. I was the only one of the four main candidates that wasn't educated at private school. And I was the only one <laughs> that wasn't white. Not at all in the election campaign did that come up. I'm not saying it should have, but if we are in this heightened state of, you know, political, you know, antennae and, and insight, then I was I was actually quite surprised that that those issues were, were kind of didn't come up. And that's one of my things. There was lots of contradictions here. Yes, there was a lot more conversation, but the question is how deep and how insightful was that conversation? And what what will happen? Because I know that the uh, the statue is now on display 
temporarily, although with no end date. Mm. Is it likely that we'll just stay in the museum there, or do you think it'll end up somewhere else? No, we'll keep it here for for a good while because the, we, because we have COVID, the limited numbers of people going yeah, through. Course, so we yeah. want as many people as possible to have a chance to go through and see and to participate. By the way, in the survey that goes yeah. with it, which is about creating space for the city and people from outside the city can contribute um, uh, contribute their ideas to what they think should happen with the statue. So it'll be there uh, for a while. But I think other people will, I mean, you know, at some point in the future, want to see it, and we we need to be open to 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 sharing. And you talked about your conversations with people around the world. Who Did you find yourself suddenly in the centre of, sort of international spotlight and scrum uh, last year? Who have you been speaking to around the world about, oh, it was uh, mad. about all these issues? <laughs> it was a mad time. So I, I went on um, on the day, I did Channel 4 in the evening. I think by the time I came in the next day, I just had a whole rotor, <laughs> like a lineup of interviews. I sat at my desk and I just pressed leave, join, leave, join all day. Uh, our comms team on the back of an envelope calculation think I probably spoke to about a quarter of a billion people. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was, most know, of them were the red box podcast. Of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard your, uh, user, your listeners are going up. <laughs> and, um, uh, on the sort of the broader question of why Bristol, and we talked about this last year. And then obviously since then we've had the kill the bill protests, mm. you know, nowhere else in the UK do they explode in quite the same way. And I've been looking back and we're here about it at 11 o'clock, but the, uh, the history of protest in Bristol. What is it about Bristol that means that there is this long, you know, sometimes successful, sometimes not, sometimes, you know, it has uh, tragic ends too, but what is it about Bristol that means it does have this history of protest? That I, I would would really be reluctant to say what the thing is. I mean, what you can you can throw forward a bunch of things. I mean, uh, one is you know it's a very creative city, very innovative. So it's at a crossroads. So you know ideas uh, come together. Um, I might also point to the fact that this is a very unequal city, right? So uh, while the brand, the Bristol brand to the outside world has been this is a progressive city and and all that. You know, people are pointing out we're the seventh worst city in the UK to be black in. We're one of the worst cities to be born poor in. One in four of our children, uh, are, you know, growing up in income-deprived households. And as a kid growing up here, I was a mixed-race kid growing up here, but I was acutely aware of the racial fractures uh, within the city and that there were some areas of the city that uh, were not didn't feel safe for me to go. And, and the, the reverse was true as well, that people didn't feel safe necessarily to come in parts of the city you know, I was growing up in. And maybe that mix of creativity and the tensions and inequalities and dissatisfaction uh, gives rise to uh, situations in which people will protest. But these, as you're right, these protests go back a long way. I mean, David Dolasuga's House Through Time told the story of the statue uh, being pulled down in Queen Square. Exactly right. A, a long we, time ago. We go all the way back to the 1793 Bristol Bridge riots. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a long old story there. Given, you know, let, let's focus on your job then as as mayor of Bristol. You just outlined some of the problems in terms of uh, poverty and, and racial disparities in Bristol. What are you trying, what can you do as the mayor to try and address that? And what impact has the last 12 months with the with lockdown and the pandemic had on, on, on is, it, is that exacerbated those issues? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think what COVID will mean is that those those who, who are most marginal to the economy will be hit first and hardest. And then by definition, they will be in the least, the worst place to benefit from any economic upturn when it comes. So I think the underlying drivers in our country and in our world will be to be, you know, exacerbating those inequalities that were already growing anyway, unprecedented levels of inequality in the globe at the moment. So we have to put the machinery in place that 
intentionally counters that. Um, so it, what we can do at the local level, uh, we, house building is our top priority. Yeah, one of the reasons I escaped the circumstances of my birth was uh, having a good quality council house. I could shut the door and feel safe behind. So good quality uh, council housing is massively um, you know, important to us. Uh, we're being very proactive in trying to make sure that we have a balanced community. So Bristol gets very excited about having a you know, high tech, green tech and all these. These are all massively important to us. But you also need jobs for people where someone's made a mistake. They've gone, maybe they've gone to prison at 18 and come out at 26. You know, they need to entry point back into the economy. So you have to have that mixed economy so there are entry points in. We've been very proactive in getting work experience for young people. Over 56% of our young people would not get a meaningful work experience. And you, you can imagine how that then begins to echo through uh, life. So being very intentional about reaching out and making sure people feel included. And I, I think the other area we're going to have to really be very intentional about is obviously educational catch-up. You know, I'm dismayed at the amount of money being put forward by government right now. Uh, but we'll do our best with our own businesses here uh, to uh, to support our young people to recover. And that means recovering in the classroom. It means recovering mental health. And it also means picking up those people who have drifted out of education and drifted out of employment are in some sort of limbo now. You talked as well about how you've been re-elected uh, this year. I think it was the first time in some time that the, at the sitting sort of mayor or leader of the leader of the council had, you know, because Bristol politics chops and changes quite yeah. a lot. But you were, you were re-elected. But the... What do you make of the rise of the Greens? So the Greens came second to you in the mayor. Uh, they're now level with uh, Labour. Obviously, you're uh, Labour, but Greens and Labour now level on the city council. Are the Greens now just sort of the official opposition in Bristol? I don't know. I, I mean, you could say Bristol Bristol politics moves around. It wasn't too long ago the Lib Dems were the you know, dominant party uh, within the city council. So I think... I think, you know, issues present themselves and then you have to, you know, peel back and find out what's going on because, again, one of the dynamics was that people were being told, I'm going to vote Green at the councillor level, uh, but I'm going to vote for Marvin, you know, for the mayor. So people were making a very intentional, uh, you know, very conscious decision uh, for the way uh, that they were going to vote. Uh, you know, if I'm perfectly frank, I, I do think too, and I know people, some people get offended by this, but I just think it the way it is, you know, votes are, are not just about policy. I bet many people couldn't tell you what policy. <laughs> They're cultural expressions. Yeah. And, and, and what we are seeing in some of the areas where the Greens have come through is quite a heavy wave of gentrification have, have, have come through. Um, and um, that, that, you know, is one of the, the contexts in which I think, um, you know, there, there's increased popularity because it's that, it's that cultural expression. But at the same time, I'm also being elected as a cultural expression of the, the city, you know, as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of stuff that people will be able to to, to pull apart and pull, pull layers back over the coming months. It's interesting, though. We'll keep an eye on, uh, you know, do the Greens like the Lib Dems, you know, where, where they start getting, you know, facing the problems of making decisions in local government, you know, do, you, do they get a bit of kickback from that if they're essentially, like you said, the sort of, it's a nice thing to do at the moment, to vote for the Greens, um, uh, but sometimes they have to be held to account for that. We, we should also speak about your, uh, your leader, Keir Starmer. Um, how do you think he's doing a year, in, a year into the job? Is he doing well enough? Yeah, I mean, I always support the leader, and I think, you know, he's taken on a massively challenging role, leading the Labour Party. It's always a challenge. I find it a challenge for me uh, down here. Um, and, you know, and in the face of a pandemic, um, and, and then facing that tightrope of to what extent do you uh, challenge and, and criticise government um, at the risk of people saying, hey, we need to be pulling together right now. 
Um, and to what extent do you support in the face of, of the challenge? I think it's a it's a wickedly uh, challenging uh, situation to take on. But I think the best course of action when you have a leader is is to to support that leader when you know that they, they want to do the right thing, when they've got integrity. Was he an asset for you during the election? Do people say, oh, yeah, Marvin, I like Keir Starmer. He seems like a good, good egg. Yeah, well, it was it was a mix, Frank, <laughs> in, in, in Bristol, because that's the nature, you know, of Bristol. And we got our own internal Labour Party uh, things. But I certainly didn't find uh, Keir a liability. I, not at all. I mean, I, you know, and I'm, I'd be proud to stand by him. I've had him in Bristol and I'm, you know, I'm pleased when he comes and, he, you know, and, and um, he came down. Actually, came down, and we spent an afternoon in a kids' adventure playground. <laughs> and, uh, you know, debated whether we should go on the zip yeah. line. <laughs> Maybe and, you and, should. Maybe that's exactly and, the thing. And I say, when we were there, the kids, you know, people really warmed to him and really loved because it's, you know what matters for me is integrity, and I want to know that someone really wants to get good things done, and that's what I believe um, he wants to do, and why you know you know I support him and continue uh, to support him. Now I can't let you go without. Uh, asking about e-scooters. When I said I was doing the show and speaking to you, if you had a go on one, I haven't done. They look a bit. Uh, well, I we saw some, done your research last then, night. You? <laughs> I nearly saw someone fall off one, uh, uh, and then they, uh, yeah, and then they, they were laughing. So they were, they were absolutely fine. Um, what is this? What's the what's the the, the deal with uh, e-scooters in Bristol becoming a permanent feature? Yeah, I think they're very very popular. I think the, um, I was up at the 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 factory the other day where we keep all the, the where they keep the Bristol scooters. We started off with um, about hundred. I think we're up around 2,000 on wow. the streets now. I mean, they yeah. are everywhere. Oh, massively. Very, very popular. And do you, and, do you uh, use them? Yeah, I caught one the other day. And I t- this is this is exactly what it should be doing. I was I had an appointment. I live in Eastern, and my appointment was up in Clifton. Um, I needed to get there. I had about half an hour um, because I was a bit late. And I could have taken the car, but I thought, actually, I could take a scooter. So I ran out, got a scooter, scooted up to um, Clifton. It's perfect. And it was a really nice way to travel, too. That was Marvin Rees speaking to me on the Red Box podcast. Now, to try and answer this question of why do protests keep happening in Bristol, I've been on a history tour of the city. Uh, and it turns out that the history of rebellion stretches back all the way to the 1700s. This is what I found out. So I'm James Watts, the University of Bristol. Uh, I work as teacher and researcher in the Department of History. So James, explain where we are now in the beautiful Bristol sun. So we are uh, at Bristol Bridge, next to Castle Park. So Bristol Bridge has been a site of Bristol protests for a long time. Most recently, 2019, with the Extinction Rebellion activists, um, where they parked a beautiful pink boat right in the centre of, of the bridge to stop everyone get past. But that's part of a longer history of protest at the bridge. In 1793, there was Bristol Bridge riots, or massacre, depending on who you talk to, where there were toll houses on the bridge, and Bristolians had believed that these toll houses would come down in 1793. They'd been there for 25 years to pay for the building of the bridge, um, and they'd been told that that's when they would stop. So carters, anyone carrying produce across, had to pay a fee. But in... 1793, the toll was sold. Um, so it was sold to someone else. So that toll was going to continue. So over a weekend, a lot of um, people came to sort of take down the toll houses, ignore it, not pay. Um, and they basically occupied the bridge from Saturday through to Monday when they were then cleared by soldiers um, from the City of Bristol Corporation. And when you say massacre, what actually happened? So the mayor of Bristol um, came down with soldiers. They read the Riot Act and then started firing. Um, 11 people died and about 45 people got injured. Wow. It's quite an unassuming bridge, but it's been here for a long time. Yeah. And 
when you're because you're you've been doing a lot of work so the history of protest in bristol is this the sort of first is this the sort of starting point of that do you think so it is the first notable big incident but there were certainly a lot of other many smaller different incidents over the 18th century sort of in a deeply undemocratic society riots were a form of collective bargaining in some ways after that though uh, bristol got a bit of a taste for it so where are we going next on our tour of uh, bristol uh, protest sites we're going to go along um, Corn Street, um, which is where sort of big um, unemployment protests in the 1920s and 30s happen. OK, let's head there now. So this is nice, Corn Street. There's lots of sort of market stalls and knick-knacks and tourists. Uh, what's that? You can get a picture of a tiger or a, <laughs> like a walrus wearing glasses or like other, you know, glass work and that sort of thing. But what, what, would, what would this street have been like in the past? Well, we've got a lot of the um, sort of council buildings here so there is the courthouse just down there um, and Bristol Market the sort of the exchange the corn exchange here Um, a bit further down we've got a lot of the old sort of banks and the commercial rooms so a lot of the meeting places for the insurance companies from the 18th century um, NatWest was along here um, back in in, in the 1700s Um, so it would have been a quite a commercial area for quite a lot of the important sort of government buildings like so this is where the money is. This has quite, always been quite a divided city, the rich bits and the poor bits, and sometimes those, those things clash. Yeah, certainly. Um, and there is that, the proximity of a lot of those rich and poor areas is an important part of, I think, this history of protest. Sort of how close Clifton is to um, the city centre, how close, I don't know, say, St Paul's and Stokes Croft are to Ashley, um, and you know, suburbs like that, very rich and poor, quite close together. So we're heading down Corn Street now, uh, and through an area where there were some riots in the early 1930s too? Yeah, um, so 1932 Old Market riots. There were sort of series of marches after the reduction of unemployment benefit um, by about 10%. Um, this was during early years of the Great Depression. Um, a lot of people were unemployed, um, wages were already very low, and the unemployment benefits were also very low. So they marched down here to the council houses, um, which were then interrupted by... Um, police who tried to divert the march and uh, scuffles uh, and a riot broke out and there are pictures from the time which basically show most of this area and Augustine's parade of just running battles with the police um, battens out a lot of sort of wounded um, civilians and and protesters uh, and what was the upshot of it because I suppose the, uh, it's remarkable the sort of history of protests in Britain is it because sometimes it works yeah, un- un- unfortunately that is, that is sometimes the way. It sparks a conversation, perhaps, but um, the power remains where the power always was. Um, and no, this process wasn't successful on, on, on this occasion. So now outside the Bridewell uh, police station, which is the scene of the Kill the Bill demo in Bristol back in March... Some 56 people have been arrested to date. Nine of them have appeared in court charged with uh, various offences. And the police saying they continue to invest significant resources to bring people to justice. Detective Chief Superintendent Calorin Belafonte saying the protests were some of the worst violence we've seen in Bristol for some years. And just, James, where we're standing, you can still see quite a lot of it, can't you? The windows smashed. Uh, in fact, uh, some of it not even boarded up outside the police station. Yeah, definitely. It, it certainly had a, a, a significant impact. There was a... Um, a protest upon College Green during the day, which then sort of during the evening and at night came down and focused much more on the police station um, and did turn violent in the end. 
you not see just behind you um, a, a scorched area of tar- tarmac from where the uh, uh, the oh yeah the police van was. Uh, oh yeah, I recognise it now for having seen it on uh, on TV. It's quite a narrow sort of side street, isn't it? There was a lot of debate then about whether or not the people who were involved in the Kill the Bill post were they really from Bristol? Is, is Bristol just become you know a tourist attraction for professional uh, protesters? But, uh, for you, having looked at sort of the history of uh, protests in Bristol, where does it fit in into all that? I think it's a difficult one. I mean, you're never going to know where all the protest is coming from and, and what happens with a spark like that in confrontation with the police, who were obviously out in force during the Kill the Bill protests, especially in the evening. So obviously there is that sort of nationwide pro- protest movement who are sort of very interested for their own reasons and uh, certainly not illegitimate reasons interested in, in, in protest and, and want to protest like that but there is also a very strong homegrown tradition of protest like that so it, it's very difficult to say now are we uh, it's an interesting question now are we or am i uh, sort of over romanticizing or putting too much emphasis on bristol and its history of protest because uh, on the one hand you know this is where the big kill bill protests happened uh it's also where you know despite all the black lives matters protests that happened across the country it's where the, a statue was pulled down is there something about Bristol? Is it actually just something about part of Bristol? Or, you know, the, it, it all, you know, people forget there's different parts of the city and that sort of thing. What, what is your take on it? Uh, I, I think it's a very interesting one because um, there are certainly parts of Bristol um, that are very interested in and have that long radical history and have a very modern take on how to live alternatively, how to live maybe sort of more radically in opposition to perhaps the government. Parts of Bristol you know, are... are do not necessarily have that yeah. same sort of radical alternative um, and their voices I think do sometimes get left out of this. So it's the sort of radical anti-authoritarian anti-establishment element which maybe gets more focus on and actually large parts of the city are quite well healed small c conservative and probably slightly less impressed with the idea of being labelled as this sort of hotbed of revolutionary protest. Yes, certainly. Although, you know, on the other side, the green surge that happened in the local elections was pretty much the old Victorian city. Um, the suburbs are, are outside it are, are slightly different, but that sort of old city is basically all gone green now. So there is definitely that narrative that has stuck in Bristol, that it does make it quite different from a lot of, a lot of other cities across the country. So where are we heading now? Um, well, I just want to draw your attention to the Bay Horse pub just across the road. Yeah, literally right, right next door to the police station. So this is where, in 1964, um, Paul Stevenson, who was an activist uh, from St Paul's, very involved in the Bristol bus boycott, which we can talk about in a bit, he sat down, ordered a pint, and was refused service for, for no reason that he could find, so he refused to move. He refused to accept it, um, and he was eventually sort of removed by the police for you know not, not voluntarily leaving a licensed premises when asked, which is the year before, and another sort of nationwide sort of media attention on that led to the passing of the um, Civil Rights uh, Race Relations Act. So as you explained, Paul was a black man from Bristol. Yep. I didn't actually know about that story. I knew about his involvement in the bus boycott. Just tell us a bit about that. So the bus boycott in 1963 was organised by diff- people from St Paul's, um, Paul Stevenson, Roy Hackett and a few others, the West India Development Council. So it was to do with the Bristol Omnibus Company refused to employ black or Asian bus crews. So Paul Stevenson organised uh, an interview for a guy, Guy Bailey, who had experience as sort of engineering from Jamaica, but he'd only recently come to, come to the UK, and he got an interview. But then they told the bus company that he was Jamaican, and the interview had cancelled. So they started a large pro- protest, uh, the bus boycott, supported by protests from students at the university, and about five months later, um, the bus company and the union relented once again that's but that is i suppose that is a sign of 
protest working. They, they, you know, people in Bristol identified there was an issue, that the bus company was essentially refusing to employ black drivers. There was a protest, a boycott, and the, the bus company relented. That might say something about the very specific aims um, and the very like clear organisation and attention to detail that was that. This is an issue we don't like and we're going to protest against it in this way. Clear aims, and, and then they got there, um, which is... Not to say that they weren't interested and kept campaigning on, on wider racial issues um, and class issues, but they had very clear and specific aims. I suppose that's, a, that's probably a good lesson for protests generally. The, you know, protests which are something must be done about climate change or we don't like the government are probably not going to be as effective as this very specific thing that we think should be changed. Yeah, definitely. You, you, you do need that sort of specific point, I think, for some protests. But, you know, if, if there are load larger protests yeah, yeah. to be had, and how, how are you going to sort of mobilise and, and sort of protest on those issues? You know, you can't necessarily always latch on to one specific thing when there is something that's very vast, like climate change or generalised racial inequality and injustice. And what do you focus on? Which is possibly why Black Lives Matter got the spark from the murder of George Floyd and sort of climate collapse protests get attention usually in the wake of a specific event that, that can be attributed to it, although Extinction Rebellion is trying to change that. Here's Matt Shawley on Times Radio on a walking tour of Bristol with James Watts, uh, an associate teacher from the Department of History at the University of Bristol, uh, talking me through some of the protest sites uh, of Bristol. And where are we heading next? Uh, to the with that, the former site of the Colston statue. Oh, of course. So we make our way across the road to the scene of almost exactly a year ago. Uh, this was where, well, a year ago, right now, this was where there was a statue of uh, Edward Colston. Yes, yeah, certainly. Looking down on us um, from above, um, it was erected in 1895. So it was 170 years after Colson died, um, by a sort of Victorian idea of what you might call civic sort of duty. He was really praised for his philanthropy, um, and that, the idea was to reinforce that sort of idea. There was a lot of anxiety in Bristol at the time about strikes. There'd been a big series of strikes a few years earlier, um, and sort of rising organisation of socialist trade unions, socialist agitation. So the idea was, which wasn't very widely supported by a guy called James Arrowsmith proposed uh, a statue to Bristol's um, favourite son as, as he thought him um, but not I mean it was his favourite son of Bristol without necessarily being Bristol's favourite son but this is Edward Coulson was not actually someone who everyone in Bristol loved even at the time no certainly not so I- even sort of in the early 18th century when, it, when, when he, he died um he was very much known as being a high Tory. He was sort of he, he did do quite a lot of philanthropy, but it was philanthropy directed towards certain ends. It was linked to homes for sailors, sort of ed- schools, perhaps you know, very much sort of educating towards what he wanted. And so it says that you oh, you could just make out because it's got a bit of graffiti on the front again. Erected by citizens of Bristol as a memorial of one of the most virtuous and wise sons of their city. And so how significant is it then that it was this time last year that the statue came down? It wasn't a huge surprise to people in Bristol, was it? It had been, so there'd been a long conversation. Yes, yeah, certainly. They'd been going on for 30 years quite prominently and there'd been serious sort of opposition to it, possibly since the 1920s. There was a biography of Colston written um, in the 1920s that was quite critical of him, re- revealed a lot of his slave trading links. Um, and then from the 1960s onwards, there were sort of rumblings of people who were sort of really pointing out this link of Colston um, with the slave trade and wondering whether he should be 
sort of in such a prominent place in such a prominent part of the city. Which I mean, it really is. I mean, it's maybe a hundred, a couple hundred meters from the main war memorial in the centre of the city, uh, and it's still obviously an empty plinth. Now I know there's an ongoing conversation about uh, what should go on it next. So, what's your name? My name is Flavius Grizzle, and you're from Bristol. Yes. And we're standing next to the empty plinth, the Colston plinth in Bristol. Uh, how do you feel about it? Well, I think they should leave it in the river where it, where it belongs. Because <laughs> what Colston did was throw away a lot of sick slaves during the process to the Caribbean and Americas. And those people were sitting no good to him, their commodities, right? So they threw them in the, in the river for shark food. And it just, they did the right thing, throw it in, they should leave it in there. Well, they, the fi- they, they fished it out and put it in a museum. Do you think it would be better if they'd left it at the bottom of the... Yeah. Yeah. I think that's where it should be. Because as far as I can remember, when I was going to school here, um, I remember um, them talking about get, taking it down. And it's just a weak government and locals. Like, you know, we got we got mixed-race uh, mayor um, in Bristol, and he's been elected this, uh, this, the second time. I think he complains a lot. He's a very weak guy, you know. So what would you like to see on the on this empty plinth? Do you think leave it empty or put something else up there? No, I would like to see some a group of slaves on top of there. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and name them as well. I'm sure they can find them in yeah. the Caribbean as well. Yeah. Yeah. Was it what a great idea? In Jamaica, in America, yeah, other part of the Caribbean. They should put a group of slavery, a slave up there. That's one idea there from somebody in Bristol about the idea of putting uh, a statue of some slaves up on the plinth that was once occupied by Edward Coulson. Let's leave the plinth now. Uh, Matt Jolly on Times Radio, still with James Watson, Bristol University, on a tour of the city's uh, protest sites. And let's head down. It's actually much further than I imagined, uh, James. Several hundred metres uh, from the plinth down to the water's edge. And just a reminder of those extraordinary pictures, the moment that the statue of Edward Coulson stood for two centuries here in uh, Bristol the moment that it was toppled into the Bristol Harbour So we've come inside now to the M Shed Uh, it's a museum of the history of Bristol which overlooks uh, that overlooks the docks where the Coulson statue was, was toppled in, and it's where the Coulson statue is currently on display. So as you, as you uh, head in, uh, the first thing you see on, here on the right-hand side on the wall is a, is a display of some of the placards from the Black Lives Matter protests uh, from last year. Um, some say, I can't breathe, which of course are some last words of George Floyd, which triggered uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protest uh, a year ago. Um, Others saying racism is a pandemic too, um, and a little bit of detail of what exactly happened exactly a year ago. And then as you turn around to the left, there's a sort of, what do you call it, a sort of projection video wall um, of some of the coverage. And then there it is, the much-discussed uh, statue of Edward Colston uh, lying down, not standing up, lying down, still with some of the bright red and some, and some blue uh, graffiti on there as well. Um, and a, a, it's behind a sort of glass barrier so you can't reach over and touch it. It's some signs of the damage um, from being rolled through the middle of the city centre. But the way it's sort of laid out almost reminds you of almost sort of a tomb, if you like, lying down. And as a result, you're looking down on it, having been a statue which for so long had looked down 
on the people of Bristol. Well, why is it lying down like that? Uh, and how long will it be here? Well, let's catch up now with Ray Walton, who is the head of Collections and Archives at Bristol City Council. And, uh, Ray, first of all, uh, why is the statue lying down in, that way, in this way? Well, it's lying on its back because, actually, in the end, after much discussion, we decided we should be open and honest and say that this is how we've been um, caring for it while it's been in store. Uh, the whole point about this display is to ask people what should happen next, so let's just put it out as it is, really. And what sort of state is it in? Because I was struck walking through Bristol earlier just quite how far it travelled. In my mind, it seemed much closer to the water. Well, you, you can see if you look closely, it's missing two parts. It's missing its cane and also part of the frock coat. Um, but there's also damage you can clearly see from the rolling event that took place on it. But aside from that, it's in pretty reasonable condition. Um, we've stabilised it and conserved it with our team. Um, and uh, it's, it's, you know, it's still pretty good. And there's a survey. Once you've, been past, you've, you've read about the history, you've seen the statue, there's a survey you're asking people to take to give their views on it. I was struck, even the few minutes just um, when I was going through myself, friends and you know, having live, sort of heated discussions about what they think should happen. Uh, and in many ways, we hope that's what museums should be about. You know, they're not um, places of hushed tones. They should be places that stimulate debate, discussion, and uh, particularly a topic like this. You know, it's not an easy topic and difficult for very many people. There are every opposing view you can mention, uh, different ends of the spectrum, um, and we appreciate that and understand that. And another idea with the display, which may be slightly naive to hope, but the idea is that when you come into it, you you start off with your particular viewpoint, you see the background to what happened, you then see the statue itself, and as you go out, you see and hopefully pick up on this view that we should now unite together as a society to agree how best to address these issues. Uh, it's, it's not about um, polarising people's views, it's how can we come to consensus to, to co cooperate. So what's the, what's the plan in the medium to long term of the statue? How long, long will it be on display here and then what happens? I have to say, I've had quite a long career here. It's the first ever time we put something on display as a temporary display and never actually said when we're going to take it down. <laughs> um, and that's very much on purpose, that we just want to judge uh, how it's, it's received, to see how much consultation response we get, uh, and then we'll make a decision in collaboration again with the History Commission as to when it would be appropriate to take it down and to end the consultation. But at the moment, it's all open-ended. So it, it, temporary could be, it could be very temp long-term temporary. I, remember, I think I had classrooms like that when I was at school. <laughs> right, thanks very much for joining us. Can I, I'm from the Times, Times yeah. Radio. Can I just have a chat with you just about what you've made of the thing? Well, I think it's quite monumental, isn't it, that he's finally been recovered and popped into, I think, where he should have been put a decades ago, basically. And what's the mood in Bristol like one year on? Because obviously not everyone agreed, even if you thought the statue shouldn't have been there, you could have disagreed with the way it was taken down. Um, how is the mood in Bristol now? Well, I think it's uh, it's changed for the better, but then obviously we've also uh, been hit by a pandemic in addition to everything else which has happened. There's been a slight tension at times, as been seen with other riots, especially around the police. Um, so I think something else will bubble up and happen in the not-so-distant future, but I don't know what will trigger it. We were having a holiday in Devon and we're on our way back home now, stopping off in Bristol. Just for this? 
No, we've been before to Bristol. We just wanted to stop for uh, the day, but we definitely wanted to check this out now that we were here, yeah. We made time for it, yeah. And what do you make of it? It's great, I think. Like, it's a way of kind of reinterpreting and interrogating our history, which we should do. Like, lots of uh, statues are up that just never get questioned. This is one of the places where it is happening, so I think it's a good thing, yeah. What about you? And definitely in the context of all of that, with all the placards from what happened last year, it's, it's, it's really good to see. I think it should definitely stay. One year on, do you feel like anything's changed? Are the, better, are the conversations better? Or was it a thing which happened last summer and we've gone back to how we were before? I think it's definitely sparked some conversation and it's definitely um, brought things into perspective for a lot of people. Um, some things that were maybe in the background earlier, but um, events last year really um, got instigated certain conversations in the public no yeah I was just agreeing like I, I think the conversation's starting this is the beginning and it's going to take a long, a long road ahead of us but yeah it's definitely better than it was uh, before last summer yeah. so having just been to see the Colson statue now walking back through the M Shed the museum in Bristol and James you've stopped us because you've spotted another Bristol protester so this is Theresa Garnett a Bristol suffragette um, and in 1909 she waylaid Winston Churchill who was uh, a prominent opponent of suffrage movement with a a dog whip um, and dog whipped him in Temple Mead Station, shouting votes for women. Wow. I mean, in fact, this whole display says, have you ever taken direct action for political calls? And it's all about Bristol's history of, of doing exactly that, that um, you know, down the years. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it's definitely a part of Bristol's sort of self-identity. Um, and it's becoming ever more prominent um, in how people talk about and think about Bristol. It's interesting, that, isn't it? A sort of, rather than it just being a series of unconnected events, a sort of sense of self-awareness of its history. And that sort of feeds into a narrative and sort of self-identification of we are a radical city who does things differently to the rest of Britain. How true that is, you know, if you put it against sort of the radical traditions of, say, Manchester, Nottingham, London in particular, is obviously debatable, but there is definitely and especially in recent, the last sort of decade or so, that sort of narrative that's being put about by Bristolians and about Bristolians. I suppose it's also, it feels, it feels like a live thing in Bristol still, in a way that maybe it's less so in some of those other places you mentioned. Yeah, definitely, and especially over the last few years, it's really, really got going with the Extinction Rebellion, with Black Lives Matter, with the Kill the Bill. Big, prominent protests have happened in Bristol um, that have gained national attention in ways that um, they you know, perhaps haven't a bit further back in history. Yeah, it feels like if it, if it carries on the same vein, they're going to need a much bigger museum. <laughs> I think you might be right. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 